Tonight, we welcome Lee Vandeveer and her band to the stage of the Phoenix Theater. Lee's personal story is one of joy, sorrow, and resistance, and her songs are a reflection of that. Tonight, we'll talk about the love, the longing, the loss, and the resurrection that Lee has channeled into this project, and later, she and the band will play a set of music. Please welcome to the program, Lee Vandeveer Band. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. All right, here's my thesis statement beyond the intro. Uh, I feel that an artist's work is a product of their lived experience, and yours is such an example of that. Um, I think all the like the pain and the isolation and the redemption of your story really like sets the stage for what people are going to watch later on when they watch this music. Um, if you're comfortable, could you tell us some of your story? Um, where do you want to start? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm good at telling it from. Okay, first I was born. Yeah, no. I, w- yeah. I would skip past uh, the the childhood parts where everything seemed fine. There was not a time when everything seemed fine. Uh, that's the trick. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> that makes you unique because a lot of people, the first couple years are nice. We're just, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're young. We don't know. Right. But not Lee. Not Lee. See, this is new. I, I, <laughs> I know like... Uh, Sadly. <laughs> I, I know like the... I think like I would guess like what I know is like teenage Lee onward. Right. Um, so right. yeah, whatever you want to share. I was really... Um, I think I was first, it was first recognized that I was a little extra sad, you know, I was nine and I had a a psychosomatic illness and, um, you know, you look back and you know more, I know more, I look back and I know more just from my own mental health journey and I look back and I can actually see some triggers that would have caused a, a child to have a psychosomatic illness that may not be actually an organic illness. That maybe, you know, the layers and layers and layers of small traumas or big ones um, results in, you know, what we also often call, you know, a mental illness as a, like a, an organic, like something, you were born with that, something's wrong with you. But, and that may be true. But I also think that I can point to some significant things that a person like me, which is a person who is very open, very, um, now I use the word hyper empath because I learned about that through somebody I studied. And I would most certainly call myself a hyper empath and everybody in my band's a hyper empath. And that's the people that kind of knew from really early on that it, it was a little harder like emotionally or something. I think there's a lot of that. I think as a, we grow, um, we learn to live in society and we learn to not even deal with that. And artists either have to or somehow it seems like we have to. And so it seems like we have to have this journey, this long journey of mental health, some of us. And and my story is that it's a long journey of mental health and art has always been a, a piece of that and most especially music. Um, but I was nine years old when I had my first diagnosis of a, of a mental illness. And then I think I was in my twenties um, when I uh, was diagnosed bipolar and they were 
never really addressed in a way that we might address them today. This was, I'm 52, so this is, you know, 30 years ago. And it was good, but it was just like, oh, you're bipolar. And, and, but we didn't, we didn't do a lot of problem solving. And then I didn't really have, I just kind of lived life, but I changed jobs a lot. And it was clear that I was just kind of this up and down person, creative, but, you know, not really, um, couldn't put it together. Then when I was, I think, 40, I really lost it. I was a school teacher and I was not able can we come yeah. back to that in uh-huh. a minute? So yeah. when you talk about a psychosomatic uh, incident yeah. when you were nine, mm-hmm. what is that? Like, what, What's yeah. the difference between that and like another sort of... My arm, I was unable to move my arm, but there was nothing wrong with my arm. And so it was really in my head. And so it was a physical manifestation of, a, of, of, of me shutting down in some way. Um, I had some, my, my grandmother died right around that time and she lived with us. And so she was like a second mom. And so there were some things, um, there were some things in my life that were, you know, like everybody, everybody has trauma, everybody. Um, and I was just sensitive, really sensitive. And the point you made about, uh, you know, being an artist and like Mm -hmm. having to feel and like, you know, but Conversely, you were forced to live in the society, which causes you to you kind of need to get numb to some of the yeah. the bad stuff in order just to exist. Right. I always think about like when we walk by, you know, a, a person who's living on the streets, who's obviously having an, an incredibly tough time, right. and um, how we just are trained living in society to right. to not feel one way or the other about right. it because we're walking to where we're going. And, and it, yeah, absolutely. And and we are that's so true. We're so trained to to walk by. We're trained to willfully not only be silent, but willfully ignorant. We have to stay willfully ignorant of why that person's on the street. And we have to stay willfully silent. First of all, because we can't, what are we going to do? Quit our jobs and join? Like I, I volunteer at the homeless shelter once a week. Okay, so you can either stop and work in nonprofit and do that work on the streets and, and, and be there and be for that people. Or you have to go get a job or two or three and you have to willfully be ignorant because, you know, you, you, we, we do. And so for artists, so, so you have somebody who's on the street and you, and, and I'm by on the street, I want to be clear. I, want, I mean somebody who is, who doesn't want to be sheltered because the shelter is very can be a very unsafe place. The street is safer. They don't have enough money to actually have a house or they have just enough money for food but not enough money for a house. There's a whole bunch of reasons people are on the street. And then the people that are actually mentally ill, whose families and the society has, has does not have a way to f- figure out how to shelter them. I feel like that could be me. Like it it could be me really quickly. I, my mental health is so, has been in the past so unstable that I find that to be shockingly close. And I think that when, when I identify myself as an artist, I feel like part of that, what we call crazy, I'm going to call crazy because I am diagnosed, so I get to say the C word, but you know, I, I'm crazy. And so I have to figure out how to channel that. And we don't offer, 
Western, we just don't have a good way. And even if we do, we think we do, we have the microaggressions that we hear from anybody who has less privilege than the people with the most privilege. So that would be, you know, first of all, white women second, you know, then the list goes on of where, where your line of privilege might be. And for artists, like even if you're, even if you're a white cisgendered male, if you have a mental illness, you're also secretly in this other category. Now you can pass, but you know, you're also in an unheard you're in a part of the uh, part of the society that is unheard and I'm losing my train of thought, but well, I, I think uh, pull me back. Yeah, well, I, I have a couple of thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, number one, it's like to get a bipolar diagnosis mm-hmm. 20 years ago was, I think a lot tougher than it would be to get one now, mm-hmm. but I would, you don't think so. <gasps> no, no, that's the, the opposite was true. Cause here's, cause and so now like my bipolar, sometimes I do think, I mean, I do what I, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I just to yeah, clarify, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. I, I wasn't entirely clear. Mm-hmm. What I mean is like, I feel like there is more awareness and empathy for a person who struggles with that now than there was 30 years ago. Not one bit. You, no. Disagree. Excuse me. With yeah. The amount of psychiatrists I've gone in to see for by the way, I suffer from a mental illness. Um, they just put a Band-Aid on it. Yeah. yeah. Like they literally say, okay, so you feel this way, so let's try this pill. Okay, so that pill doesn't work, so let's try another pill. Oh, that one gives you nausea, so let's yeah. give you a pill for nausea. And before you know it, you have you know, all these pills that don't do anything. I mean, you think of a, a, like a, like a gash. Like let's say you got stabbed in the gut. Like that's to me what mental illness feels like every day is I just have this gut stab mm-hmm. and I'm bleeding out. And my second part was just going to yeah. be that it, it, it's still impossible to to live with that. I'm not saying that, yeah. it, that it's easier to live with that. No, I just, no, 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 I, no. I feel like, you know, my experience is different than yours, yeah. obviously. Uh, I feel like th- there is more awareness about it now and well, there okay. are more and there are more yeah. people talking about it, which which are positive things. But that doesn't mean living with it is easier. And no. that was going to be the yeah. second part of it. It's like yeah. even if there is more awareness and people are having the conversations more, it's still very difficult. Well, and, that, and, and that's right because it's tricky because what Bailey's saying is actually it's very correct. And what you're saying is, is spot on. The problem is that I don't think we might be talking about it, but we're actually not listening to people who have it. So I've gone to like a like the first doctor was just like, Oh, you feel up and down. I think you're bipolar. And that was literally it. Like it was just not like anything other than I was moody. And I was also like kind of just out of being a teenager and just like, you know, I was moody and maybe I was on my period that week. Like, I don't know. So he recognized something, but we didn't have a long conversation and there was nothing. It was just, I was on lithium the next day. End of story. Mm. So, was that the right drug? Was it not? I don't know. You know, I could go. But the thing is, is it, it's kind of like, you, you know, there's, there's, it's, the pool is huge. And there's all these people that go into to, to psychology or psychiatry for, for whatever reason. And then there's some that work really great. And then there's some that are not. And when somebody who's mental ill starts saying, hey, you guys are hurting us, you guys are hurting us, they go, oh, you're crazy. I think you need another shot of this. Instead of going, okay, what's making you react like this? Like, what is it? And it's the, it's the, 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 
we're talking about it more and we're medicating, we're, we're, we're squashing it more. Yeah. Maybe that's what it, we're talking about it more in, in the culture, but we're also actually harming more. You have more of a chance of having, uh, so if you get diagnosed with bipolar, I think I have the statistic right. And I, if I, I think I do, you have a better chance of killing yourself than you do of getting breast cancer and a diagnosis and actually having dying of breast cancer. So of course, immediately people say, Oh, but, but that's you killing yourself. So you're not, that's, you're not really dying of that disease. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Cause you, this is a, there's nothing scarier on the planet than feeling like you brain needs to die. And it's not you going, I think I'm just going to kill myself. It's not. And so to treat it like it's not a cancer and that it doesn't, and that it's not had, doesn't take more lives. Well, and in the fact that most of the, I mean, prescriptions that they put on, I'm going to call them band-aids can cause suicidal ideation to begin with. Right. So it's like, and that, so that was like my the point. Yeah. And yeah. that was my whole thing is every single med. In fact, now I realize that it's not only just the pharmaceutical drugs that were given to me for, for, um, mental illness. Now I'm realizing it's like everything. So I have a severe reaction to the drugs. And it says, if you have suicidal ideation on any of these drugs, stop. Um, I just recently read, like, if you do, if that happens more than three times, don't do any more because it means they kind of all do. Well, so I'm taking every drug, every single, like, you name it, I was on it. Seroquel, the ones that were the hardest to get off, Seroquel was the hardest to get off. Like, shaving it with a razor blade because it's, like, worse than heroin. Like, just, like, like this for a year. Like, it's awful. And now this is in your 20s, 30s? No, 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 this is just in my 40s. Oh, in your 40s. This is okay. my 40s. And, um, and um, horrible, horrible drugs. And, and the thing is, is I know that it's risk-benefit. I know that if it makes, you know, 50,000 people feel great and only kills five of us, then 50,000 people are great, but five of us are dead. And, okay, that's business, that's risk-benefit, that's, but we need to also include that in the in the in the cultural conversation so yes we want to talk about bipolar and I'm thrilled it's being talked about more but I also want to talk about how many people are still dying of suicide and how many people are on medication doing that and how many people are on med- off medication doing that what alternatives like there's a much bigger conversation and for me the medication one was huge because I literally was dying from medication. Um, and my, a friend of mine said, I think you should try weed. She's like, I've been smoking since I was 15, and I'm pretty sure I would have gone down the same route that you went down, which was institutionalizations, shock therapy, and mind-altering drugs that made me turn into a non-creative zombie, you know, sad, scared, awful, awful. So recently, I haven't been on these drugs for a long time uh, because I traded for cannabis in a every all wake and bake, and I was transformed. I think I started using cannabis at forty six or forty seven, traded all those drugs in. Now I'm fifty two. I was literally able to like pull my life back to into me and 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 do that. And that wasn't the only tool, but for sure. 
you know, it's a really interesting thing, mental illness, because we don't listen to people who have it enough. Yeah, and so I feel like you're very purposeful in what you try to do, not only with the music, but just with your time on this planet. And so I, I mean, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, we'll talk about like the, the belief system you have about being an artist in a little bit, because that's central to the mm-hmm. music. But also, I mean, coming on here and talking about mental health seems like a purposeful decision. Yeah. And, and I think you are doing the sort of work that is good in terms of like, hey, I'm a person who you see on a stage and I struggle with this. And mm-hmm. I think the more people that do that, the better. The problem is that societally, and I think this is where we overlap, mm-hmm. like it, it's great that she's doing this, mm-hmm. part one. But then, yeah. but then, okay, somebody says, yeah, I have, I have an issue as well that I need to get uh, some help with. Right. Societally, we don't have the mechanisms Mm-mm. in play. And that's where it's not better. Mm-mm. And I, I'm, it, I guess my thing is not suffering with it the way that mm-hmm. you folks do. Do we have an idea as to what we could do better as a society? Yeah, we have to shift the entire paradigm. Uh, no capitalism. <laughs> the medical industry makes billions of dollars yeah. off of people like us because yeah. they can prescribe us medication. It's like, it doesn't but make it. Like, but it does help some people. Like, no, and it and helps help, me. Yeah, like, I'm like, on a low dose of medication. I understand. Yeah. But it's just like, just the trials and tribulations to get to that point. It's just, I don't want to go through it ever yeah, again. Yeah. You know? well, my thoughts on this subject yeah. are, it seems like usually how they try and, and have people recover seems to be conducive with what they want the public to do. So if they wanted the public to be healthier, how, how people would be treated would change. But they just want people to be able to go to work in the morning. And so yeah. that, that's... Back that to the grind. Works. <laughs> that pretty much that that does what what they want it to do, but that's not what most. I won't say most, but I just you know my experience. I I share the same a similar kind of crazy that Lee does, <laughs> and so um, my experience has been that if if you kind of just want to shut shut down what you experience and just kind of go do you know the mundane routine of life. Most of the time, I think Western medicine would work for that. If you do just want to, if you just, if thinking is a little too difficult, if life is just too hard and you just, instead of trying to learn like a functional, instead of making it uh, personal, it's just, you know, get back in the routine, stick to the routine, stick to what our society expects of you. And which doesn't factor in a project like this. Exactly. It doesn't factor into being an artist for the most part. Yeah. If you can afford it. Yeah. Exactly. Cause like, because what we can do, um, all of us, is um, we, I couldn't have worked it today. Like I, you know, I, I, I'm, yes, I'm purposeful with my time and my time was, has been spent pretty much in the bed crying for two days because I suffer from serious depression. So, but the thing we can do is like, pull it together for a couple of hours or play guitar all day or sing. And if you can, you know, figure out a way to live a life that affords you the ability to do your art, which is probably why most lots of people are on the street because it's, this is almost impossible to do because there's no money. Um, you can really like have some healing. Like you can really heal if you 
uh, are able to be an artist or whatever you are. Like if, if you have a mental illness and you also are creative, which I think everybody is, you know, all you have to do is start doing something. And if it comes from your soul, then you doing it. And I think that if you people struggle with anything and they start doing any kind of art, it's healing. And that's why we're able to actually do this because I don't think, I, I mean, I, I couldn't, I'm disabled. I am disabled as a school teacher. I can't pull it together. Somehow, some way, I'm able to write a song in the middle of the night and pull it together to do this. But this is it. And people are like, oh, this is great. I'm like, mm, yeah, gosh, it's so hard. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it looks shiny and bright to be an artist, but really it's about soothing your soul. We actually, we're conditioned uh, to watch our artists and, and understand that actually it's not shiny and bright now. There's such a history. I, I keep yeah. flashing back to Judy Garland, yeah. uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Uh, some of the greats that I grew up watching and, and absolutely they were eaten up by uh, their mental illness and the way society just did not plug into that. Yeah. And uh, it, it looks shiny and bright for the moment, but uh, it's not. It's a burden. It, yeah, and, 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 we, and we have been watching as a society. And still, I think we're clueless as to what to do. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's an issue. You know, you said, you know, I think you started with what do we do? And I think, yeah, and, and something you said reminded me of a lyric in one of my songs. And it, it's Maya Angelou's, you know, why the cage birds, I know why the cage bird sings. So she wrote that in, in 1970. Yeah. And still, I wrote, and still I did not see. So here's, we, culturally, we're, some of us are screaming about something, and we don't see it. And then we do. We're like, oh, shit, I read that book. How did I not see that? But we, but we, how did we not know that artists are, how do we not know that all these artists that kill themselves all the time that would be the willful ignorance. You're right. Yeah. And I don't want to probe too deeply on the, the hugely traumatic. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So it's it's you know it's always like whatever you're you're comfortable yeah. sharing. But you know, uh, yours is a story of of redemption despite the pain that you live with still. Yeah. Because in your 40s, you did have the incident mm -hmm. that happened where you you had been teaching. It was a life that you quite liked. I loved it. And it was a life that you thought you would do until you were 90 exactly and then something happened and i, I know kind of the broad strokes but mm -hmm. anything you want to share about that because i mean to see you here mm -hmm. performing the songs that you perform mm -hmm. um you're right people would see that and be like there's a person that's got it together mm -hmm. there's a person that hasn't suffered major setbacks but i mean y you sit at the other side of this table as somebody who i mean just biographically has gone through some of the toughest stuff um that, that, that we've heard. Mm -hmm. I mean, to hear that you, I mean, were subjected to electroshock therapy is, uh, is, is, chose it. Yeah. As a full grown adult. Yeah. So yeah. But I'm curious. And subjected to, uh, both. Yeah. I mean, so like that, that's, that's a thing. I mean, that, that's a major, major trauma. And it so is a major anything trauma. Anything that you want to share about that section of your life, I think is, yeah. is interesting. I think that that, that's good. I, first of all, I want to say, I want to just quickly, 
along the way, like I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a learner. I'm a, and, and so I was always gathering tools and, um, in my family, there was, I, one of the earliest things I was able to do as far as mental health was 12 step program as a, as a, not as an addict, but as a, as a family member. And that probably was like that le- that was the, the the concrete concrete layer for my mental health so and I never stopped I kept reading and reading and reading and reading everything I could get my hands on and I didn't stay with the 12th step except for the 10th step which is if you don't know what the 10th step is it's continue to take personal inventory and when wrong promptly admit it and for me there's also in, in 12 step, it's take what you like and leave the rest. And that was the thing. So mm-hmm. take what you like and leave the rest. And the 10th step are, are what those are the core pieces of my mental health. So fast forward to 40 and I have this and I know this, but I lose it and I lose it partly because, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm super hypersensitive. So anything anybody's saying to me, I, like I have to be really support myself by keeping people who are in my closest proximity really aware of my mental illness and how I need to be interacted with. Um, I didn't know that at 40. I didn't, I just boundaryless kind of open raw. And I was teaching high school, I was teaching high school art. And, you know, you're in a high school setting, that's a very, that's a huge amount of vulnerable people with suicide, with sex, with drugs, with pregnancies, with everything. And I was really, really good at it because I have a mental illness and I can handle that. But I probably, I didn't, I wasn't protecting myself. I was just, I didn't know what I was taking on or what I was doing or how intense it was until I just would have to take these long breaks and I would be in bed, like depressed in bed, like, like can't get up and joints hurt and headache and can't get out of bed. And then, then it was like, Oh wait, weren't you diagnosed bipolar? And then start to go to the doctors, 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 and, you know, try to find out what's going on in a very panicked like way partly because, you know, I'm suicidal at this point. Well, then the medicine immediately started making me more suicidal, and then I would calm down and then be suicidal again. This change drugs and more suicidal. Like, it's just this constant battle of suicidal ideation with every drug, and then it would settle. And then it, The only time I made through one year, I, was, I think I made it through one year at Montgomery High School, is because I was on an ADD drug. And um, one of the doctors all along the way said, you know, all these things, bipolar, schizophrenia, all these things that you have, all these, it's also part of an ADD diagnosis. So if you take care of the ADD first, you might not have to deal with all that other stuff. I didn't listen to him. I just couldn't not, I, it was too, I was already too far into the depression and all that stuff to be able to hear him say battle with the ADD first. So last year, no, in 2017, just after the fire, I read the ADD book for the first time cover to cover. I was like, oh, shit. And what is the ADD book? It was just an ADD book that I had, like for my, like my kid was, was diagnosed ADD. And so I had a book and I hadn't really read it. I'd thumb through. I thought I knew. I was a teacher. I got this. I know. I didn't know. So I read that book cover to cover in 2019, right after the fires, 2017, right after the fires. 
And I called that doctor and I was like, I don't know if you remember me, but can you just, I just want to make sure I would. And he said, I don't really remember. I could go get my files, but I definitely know that I would have told you that. He said, I would, you would have come in with presenting as bipolar and I would have said, check the ADD. And, and, and so I did, I started working on the ADD more. What were the broad stroke takeaways of reading that book? Because you included that in the email to me in mm-hmm. advance about like how that was a transformative moment for you. Yeah. Well, one of the major things was I was diagnosed with rapid cycling bipolar because um, it, you know, because I rapid cycle, but I don't rapid cycle bipolar. I have ADD rapid. The AD, the rapid cycling that I have is absolutely by the book ADD. It doesn't have anything to do with what rapid cycling. You know, uh, could you explain what rapid cycling? Yeah, it means going from uh, uh, one mood to the other very quickly. And in ADD, um, one of the things from what I've read is that the the rapid cycling could be in in a day. You might have a mood swing from furious anger, and you see this in kids. They're just furious, and then and they have a rage response, and it's blah, and then it's over, and then they're happy again, and then they might have another one, and then but it's really rapid, and it could be in the course of a day or over a few days. Bipolar rapid cycling is uh, more like a week on, a week off, or something like that. It's not that quick. Um, And so it was like, oh. I'm not a rapid cycler. I'm a, I'm a depressive. Like when my, when I, my bipolar hits, it means I'm in bed, like can't function, can't move, can't think underwater, you know, can't move. So, uh, when I left teaching, it was because I was, I just couldn't, I was, it would be six months. I'd be off and then I'd be off, you know, and finally that, you know, they were like, look, you know, what do you think? And I didn't want to quit, or I didn't want to stop, but it was kind of, you know, I had a union, and they're like, we have, we have a, we have something for you, you know, we have, there's a, there's an avenue for this, and I want to interject because I'm very, I'm, a lot of my stuff is is social justice oriented, and I want to make sure that, that it's clear that part of the reason that that was, uh, you know, available to me is because I'm highly educated white woman, and I know that I was suffering and I know that I had something wrong and I was able to articulate that in a way to people and they were, they believed me. But if I were a woman of color, um, or a man or anybody of color, that would have been extremely difficult. And it, and it's part of the reason why I work at the homeless shelter is because I want to make sure I'm, I recognize that a lot of the people I know, did not have that luxury and it was partly because of you know education and skin color yeah so so that was the end of the montgomery high school chapter right and then you i assume based on what you just said then that you said all right well let's let's like really dive into this and see what we can do yeah and then you i believe you got a diagnosis which kind of three for a loop or something didn't they was it in your 40s that they did like the formal diagnosis and that sort of in your mind closed off some avenues or, or I don't know. I, I seem to remember like you felt like you could not teach again because well, of- I, I, I'm, I could, te- yeah. Um, I, when I, when it happened, like I, I knew like it, I was in a depression and I couldn't go back and I, and I couldn't, you know, and, and they, and then I, and I got a, a, 
com- I mean, I have a, a pension. I have a disability pension, which is not enough to live here on, by the way. But it's, you know, it's, it's, I, that's what I mean. It's like, I might be that homeless person. Like I could be just enough money to live on the street and have a good van and be able to also be a musician, but not enough to actually really live in the home that I raised in place where I raised my children. Like I, I'd have to move, you know, anyway. So I dove because the mental, because it was so shocking. I really did, um, dive into my own mental health. I thought maybe I would sub a little bit. I, I tried, um, it just didn't, you know, I just wasn't able to really pull it together and I couldn't do anything other than to dive into myself. So I, I painted, I'm a, I was a painter, excuse me. I was a painter. Um, and that's why I taught, I taught art in high school and I tried to paint, but music was actually what was really deep inside me. And during the time, yeah, I basically dove into myself and I read things, read so much about my mental illness and found so much help by myself um, that I kind of, I mean, I, I have a master's degree in education. So basically I got a master's degree in mental health and I just gave it to myself in my basement. When did you get your master's degree? Um, I got it in 2013. Maybe. Okay. So recently. Oh yeah. I was, in fact, I, I, I was literally having a serious mental health crisis when I defended my dissertation or my, my thesis and literally was it, it's driving either I'm going to drive to the ER or drive to the thesis. And I thought I can pull this together for two hours. And I did. And then I went back home and, and was back in crisis. Because, okay, so th- this is such an interesting last <laughs> seven years because yeah. music was not a huge part of your life. Uh, mm-hmm. It was something you wanted to do when you were younger, but you went the art path instead. And you, mm-hmm. what you wrote to me was that um, the way that it manifested was that like the chaos of your mind would take you down too many paths at once. Yeah. And though music was something you wanted to do as a child, right. you didn't do it because right. you just felt overwhelmed. And right. you're like, well, I'm going to do the art one instead. Right. And kind of, yeah. But now, you know, hindsight's 2020 that was described in that ADD book. So basically I read that ADD book and I was like, Oh my God, that's my life. And so when I was young and in my, I think I was 20, had a band called 20 days and we only played like one show and I loved it and I really loved it. And I, then I was like a backup singer in a band and, and also, you know, I had a little right around that time, I also had a, a, a me too crisis. I didn't know that um, at the time. I was 20 and it didn't like, it was fairly consensual. Um, it, in the back in the day, it was totally consensual, but I did get a grade from that person. And now I look back on it and I was like, oh, so I can see why you would quit everything and not realize why you quit everything. And, you know, so yeah, I wanted to do that. And between the ADD and traumatic things, um, I just was like looking all over the place, like, like a million, you know, there's a gazillion hamsters on, in the wheels up in my brain. And, and I, I don't know if I even picked art. It was that um, I just 
I don't know. I think my mom said degree in art history, and I was like, okay. <laughs> and so the thesis, um, what mm-hmm. what was that on? Because I feel like the topic there kind of plays into everything we're talking about. I think it, it does, because um, when I was teaching, uh, the main thing was trying to elicit critical thinking. And so I didn't, I, I wanted I wanted to teach people how to reflect on their own art and themselves. And so um, I created a, a classroom. I did like a half an hour. I like made people do a drawing. Like we, you have to draw this microphone. I'll t- teach you how. And like, see, you can teach people how to do anything. You know, I can teach you how to play chords, but I can't teach you to be Bob Dylan. Like I can't teach you to want to be Bob Dylan. So I would just let people make, their stuff whatever it was and then I would have them do the self-critique and it was that part it was I wanted to elicit critical thinking and so we didn't really make art as much as thought about why we were making art thought about what the art was what what emotion like all the things that go into why we do something so my thesis was about eliciting eliciting critical thinking through um uh, high school studio art classes, visual arts. And you, you love to teach, right? And mm-hmm. you talk about how you were fascinated by the different ways that people learned. Mm-hmm. I mean, why? Like, why, why did you find that process so interesting? Uh, probably because I have a mental illness and I was, I'm always trying to check out how people's brains work. Do you feel like mental illness, um, has caused your empathy to be more developed than it would be otherwise? I think that, I think that my mental illness is, a, is indi- indicative of hyper empath, being a hyper empath means I can feel more. And I think empathy is learned. Um, I, I, one of the most healing um, people in, during that time when I was 45 and I was teaching myself, there's a lot of people, but most notably Carla McLaren. She wrote a book called The Language of Emotion. And basically what she says is, um, she talks about trauma and how we all have it. And she discloses her personal trauma that's pretty hardcore. And then she talks about being a hyper empath as a child and talking to animals and talking, you know, and I'm like, oh, I, I get that. And then she talks about um learning about emotions and she talks about um that we have our emotions there's no good or bad emotions and I think pop culture and pop society and everything that's like super popular psychology wise talks about you know shame anger bad you don't want to be shame no fear no shame no anger all these things and and Carla McLaren invites us to really have a good relationship with all those things because shame in her words is that's what stops you. That's, that's your societals. That's the gift that, that you like, if you feel that, that means don't do that again. It's like, Oh, and then you say sorry and you don't, but if you, you know, shamelessness is not something you want. You, you want some shame. We want shame enough to, you know, not hurt each other. And we want anger enough to not, you know, to like say, hey, no, 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 don't come near me. You know, there's these, there's no bad emotion. And learning about that was completely shifting for me. And in, in, in that 
in, in learning about that, I was able to, um, yeah, I guess all of the things were able, uh, everything came, opened up better because I, in, instead of having a negative relationship with my emotions and my mental health and feeling like all the things that most normal people say about all these emotions, she offered something completely different. And that was, that, that shifted everything. Yeah. Because you were told that your brain could not be fixed by current methods. That was a quote that you said to me in the the email. And so uh, here we are. I mean, 2013 was when that thesis happened. And in in that year you didn't have this band, right? Mm -mm. No, I didn't, we didn't have, um, so I, I, the mental health thing happened and I was going to paint and I, in the ba- I was in the basement just learning about mental health, learning about um, just how to do things differently. And um, I, I, all of a sudden, I, there was a song in my head and I just, I just sang it to myself and I don't play an instrument. So I, you know, I just, I just sang it to myself. And so I contacted a friend who is also a local musician, Allison Harris. And, um, I, I went for, to her for voice lessons. I thought, I said, you know, I've always wanted to sing. And then I showed her the song and she's like, wait, this is a great song. And she's like, if this is your first one. And it was her dad who actually said, Oh, that, that happens sometimes. She's, that's not her first song. She's been doing this for 20 years because he was counting my painting history it, that, that just because I was changing medium, he, he was like, this is a song, but it's a, just a different medium. You've been an artist all along. So yeah, then I, she, Allison gave me permission, permission to call Chip, Chip Lee, Chip Lee Trombley. <laughs> Chip, and, seated to my left. Yes, and Chip, who is, um, I had met, um, as he was a drummer in a band that I um, was friends with and amazing, and Allison gave me basically permission to call him after I had gotten some chops with a really good friend, Alex Moore, who basically came into my basement and played what I was singing until, until, yeah, I got permission from my teacher to call Chip. (laughs) And you were not comfortable sharing this with your family. Oh, the first song I didn't. And the reason is because, you know, I have a, I have a pretty hard relationship with my family and we're estranged right now and that's okay. Sometimes a boundary I've learned in the last couple of years that sometimes you can love people if you have a strong boundary up and that maybe you don't see them. Um, I didn't tell them because I'm a verbal processor and I think that's exhausting for people. And it most certainly was for my family. For, so for me to bring a, yet a new thing, a new idea to them, um, somehow my brain knew that this needed to be a secret. Like I needed to, I needed this had to be mine and I couldn't have any judgment or any talk about it. I I couldn't have any, Oh, you should, or what do you, Oh my goodness. I couldn't have, I had to have it. My secret would have been like pouring bleach on the soil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and 
innocently. No, no disrespect to them. Totally. With, with no ill totally. intent. But there's just exactly. sometimes it's these things need to creative. Uh, grow unfettered without right. any other input. Well, ha- have right. they heard you since then? Yeah, they yeah. did. And I did, like, I, like, I, as soon as I got brave enough to show them after a while. It didn't take long, you know, because I'm still the verbal processor yeah. that needs to throw up everything. So, you know, it didn't take long before I showed them. And they were very supportive and, and very kind and, and, and very helpful. You know, it was very, they, you know, they, they were, we, I did, we did the first house concert at my parents' house and it was great. Yeah. And I think all of this is, has led to what you feel your duty as an artist is, you know? Um, and, and this is where I think everybody can chime in if you want to, there's no pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you wrote to me that you feel it's your duty as an artist to break open your soul and that by doing so you help other people do the same. And I think that's a really beautiful sentiment and anything that you wanted to expand on there, I think would be great because I think that right there is essentially why you keep doing what you do with this aside from the healing components. Yeah, I do. I, and it's weird. And I, sometimes I feel like, is it my ego? Like, I don't know what it is. One of my heroes, uh, a songwriting hero, Tim Bloom actually said, you know, I have to take this very seriously. I've to, I'm taking this, and I thought, maybe I should take it seriously. And then that's when I started thinking, that's what those, that's what Tim's words did for me. That's when lots of people's words have done for me is they broke open their soul, and then I got to be riding my bike or in the shower, and I got to break open my soul because they made the path in my brain through their music or their lyrics for me to go deeper. And that's, Chip has said often, it's a life, it's been a life raft. And that's what it was for me. It was, those lyrics were a life raft. And so if I'm going to, if I go ahead and take myself seriously, then I can say, well, maybe, maybe, maybe their life raft, maybe I'm writing my own life raft, you know? But yeah, you know, I think that's, and before the show, you said to me, because we were talking about mm-hmm. society and we were mm-hmm. talking about mental health and how it affects artists, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You, you were talking about how, you know, without your struggle, you don't get this music. That's right. You know, and how unkind you think, we talked about this already, but how unkind you think the world is to its artists. Yeah. Um, because we, we so appreciate the music culturally. Like we, you know, we, we love music. This is a, this this is a 7 billion strong, uh, (laughs) world membership that loves Mm -hmm. music. But Mm -hmm. then at the same time, um, if somebody is difficult that makes the music, it's like, get the fuck out of here, you know? (laughs) And, and so we, we, as a, as a society, that's kind of like a constant push and pull. You, you kind of said that earlier. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else to say on that? Yeah. I, I think that's it. It's like, I think that, it is, you know, I got in trouble once. I said, you know, we're hated. And, you know, someone's oh, well, we're not hated. I'm like, yeah, we are. We're absolutely hated by society. We're too scary. We're too loud. We're too emotional. We're too, we're too much. We're too much. And that's why if you're too much, you need a medicine. You need, you need something to calm yourself down because you're too much. And, and definitely, we're not compensated. We're not compensated until we become outrageously successful. And so somebody, the four of us, have to do this work, have to, because really we do. We have to do this work. And 
we're like i'd love to chime in uh, yeah. why i resonate with why we have to do this is because often as a as an artist what i've seen from my influences has been that they're often cultural whistleblowers that are calling out the status quo and it's not making a for a functioning society it's it's keeping people oppressed and it's keeping the people who have the privilege to make change busy and then people like us come along and say think about it just think about it like come listen to us and we'll do like we'll do a lot of the thinking for you and arrange it in a way that's very like often easy to accept um sometimes not sometimes it could be more abstract and then you know then it becomes a challenge of as an art, how we get to abstract something in a way that makes it more meaningful. It makes the point come across even more clearly. But it comes back to when Lee says, you know, artists are hated. It's because I think sometimes it it really shows that we're whistleblowers. We're looking at society and we're looking at people and saying, based on our experiences, we're saying, this is how we felt. This is what we see. And if other people happen to relate and it's something that's not... um. It, may, it might not be like a, an accepted idea, but it's just we kind of try to turn people on to thinking more. And it's like in your thesis, you know, just we're inciting critical thinking by making it pleasant in a way to think about some things that if you were just talking to somebody or if somebody, you know, they wouldn't be pleasant if you were sitting with, you know, trying to talk to your parents about your issues and your personal struggles from wherever you are. It's a lot easier to kind of put it in a in a box that people want to open and look at it themselves. And so that's kind of always been my feeling is, you know, a lot of the people that tend to um, not be able to have uh, full long careers, it's often because it seems like their message was too powerful and too specific. You know, a lot of people who find great success these days have kind of a, a, a broader, less intense message. It's more of just, you know, they can portray a feeling and people can relate to that feeling, but it's not inciting that critical thinking. And that's kind of the mainstream, as, as I experience it. Yeah, they don't want to be too scary. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think if you didn't have a, a strain of, like, social justice messaging, you would perhaps feel less hated. Yes. You know, I think if your songs are all just love songs. That's true. Then yeah. people would have less reason to hate you. But then for yeah. some of the stuff that you just said, yeah. Yeah. that's where, you know, that's why they're always like, keep the politics out of the well, music. But and I like, think to like hip hop. I mean, that's a big, there, there's a lot of talk in, 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 in the classic hip hop community of what happens to a lot of these rappers that meet an untimely demise. And, you know, there's hours of conspiracy theories. And I mean, a, a movie just came out about, uh, I think it was Tupac, right? Uh, like a, a, it's on Netflix. I mean, so it's like in the mainstream, people are starting to challenge like, what are people who were speaking really intense messages, and also coincidentally happen to not see the end of their careers? People are trying to connect dots that you know in the mainstream media, it they don't line up because it's not portrayed that way. It's portrayed as oh, you know one factor one small issue in their life you know cause them to get shot or exactly, somehow overdose exactly. on drugs or whatever it is to be yeah. specific about it exactly yeah. you said that it wasn't until recently that you feel like you found yourself and accepted yourself as an artist yeah what led to that because i mean you you mentioned that you're 52 yeah this is a life of art yeah and for it to be a recent you know uh development that you 
is you're like, yes, I am this and I, I feel like I can do this. That's a profound thing. I think um, it partly happened because I actually, right after the fire in 2017, we were working, um, Chip and I were in, doing the duo. Bailey was in and out base. He was been out of the country, and but Chip and I were doing the duo. And the fire broke out, and I saw an ad at, at um, Chimera, and Dana wouldn't, I think it's Woodman at Chimera said, what is Chimera? Chimera is a maker space in Sebastopol. Basically said, if you have a laptop, come down here right now. And I was frantic. I didn't know what to do. I was in a new apartment by myself. Frantic. I went down there and I was basically a new singer. And my, one of the guys down there said, um, Oh, you're a verbal processor. Oh, and he just, he accepted that I was talking too much. I was, I was processing too fast. I was, my mouth was moving too fast. And when he accepted that in me, something made me start accepting myself and something, you know, Chip showing up and working with me, Bailey showing up working with me and then Ryan later, but really all of a sudden I was recognizing that people I really respected musically were keep showing up. So I started respecting myself and taking myself seriously by other people. Like it just started reflecting. I just started seeing it. I started seeing what, okay. And then I, and then Tim Bloom from the mother hips, I, I heard either, I heard an interview or I don't know where, but he said that taking it seriously. And then I, I, I just trusted and believed. And then all of a sudden, you know, 80% of the time I can, I can believe it. Maybe 75, but a good over 50. It's better than it's 49. Totally. We're over 50. Anything over 50, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've talked about how, you know, obviously mental illness is something that you, you, you discuss a lot in your songwriting, but also social justice. And I'm curious, like, how do you address that? It's, uh, it's a tricky needle to thread. Mm, kind of, except for songs just kind of right in my head, kind of themselves. So I'm always connected, like I'm always dealing with social justice stuff. I'm always reading or looking or asking or uncovering or, you know, trying to, to, to learn more. And so, so whatever I'm thinking about in that moment or like has, have, have, I'm tuned into, it, it will often write itself in my head in a song. Um, so then then is it always a call to action? It's almost always a call to action. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you feel in this era of your songwriting is uh, the thing that is most pressing? It's pretty much, I mean, I basically it's just two things. It's the environment and, and, and social justice. And for me, social justice is pretty much, anything that deals with people of color, anything, anything, mental illness, people of color, you know, all the politics. Um, I, yeah, I have like when, when we wrote child in a cage, did I just, I sang like there, I have a song called child in a cage. It's on our EP, actually. Yeah. Uh, Schoolhouse Sessions. Yeah, it's on our EP. 
and um I just was just I just was listening or reading about you know what we're doing at the border and realizing we've been doing it for a long time and this is not necessarily new and what's going on and 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 basically it's a call to action where's our mother rage where's our father rage and then I always you know there's always other stuff in there like plastic bags in the sea pretending it's not me and it's like that's me that's that's me recognizing that I am the one who's putting plastic in the sea like it's not somebody else it's absolutely not somebody else it's me and so it's my call to action myself and it's all for all of us to be, you know, I have, a, I have an organization called face the waste. It's an art. I do a little art and it's the same. It's face myself first, you know, and face it first. What and kind of art is it? Trash art. <laughs> I wanted you to, it's recycled. It's, it's, it's right. repurposed. Right. Well, it's, I think that's important. Well, it is. Cause that, right. that both take the, takes care of the message and also, you know, it's not just telling somebody, "Hey, this is what's going on." You, they literally can see it's for real. It's right. it's it's so real now, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, and so obviously, you you see the ugly things in our world, and these can affect your mental health. So it has this just sort of ugly. And uh, I can't help but notice as you see it, uh, it pulls you right into step ten. It does. It, does. it every time. Yeah, every time. I yeah. Every time. I, I, I have to do that, like take personal inventory where, where, what am I doing? What? So if I'm writing a song, my, my me too song, um, it was for Tarana Burke who started me too in 2009, which was a lot earlier than anybody found out about it. And then it was quickly co-opted and, and taken you know, this, this beautiful, and it's still beautiful. So this beautiful woman who started this beautiful organization, um, and then, you know, it was, it was, she's a woman of color and it was a predominantly people of color. And then all of a sudden nobody knows who she is. I mean, I'm like, you set the stage. I, I, I say, you set the stage, you made it safe for me. Me meaning all white women. Uh, I, I the the lyric is, uh, you have every reason to distrust me. Shards of mirror from sea to shining sea. That's me looking in the mirror and then letting it break and not really looking. Um, you set the stage, made it safe for me. And my question is, why don't I see your eyes on the cover of Time magazine? Where where why why wasn't Tarana Burke? on the cover of Time Magazine for the Me Too. Why wasn't it just her face? It wasn't. It was a bunch of people, including some beautiful white women. And that's fine. Okay, great. But no, it's not fine. She did this. She helped all all of us. And some people are like, well, she hurts. Yeah, okay. For This is risk-benefit. She opened up for you know, 90% of these people, men and women to, to be able to have that conversation and then 10% of the people who might may have abused it or whatever. So of course, media is going to focus on the 10% of people who are wrong and media is going to focus on men and yeah. And, and no matter what, right. And so, yeah. And so that's, that's like a, that's a huge one for me. Like 
And then, the, you know, the song goes on uh, about social, like, you know, it goes on and on. Yeah. Well, call to action. I mean, call it's, all, to action. it's all called action. It's all, it's all, and it's calling me to action first. And it's like, it, it, you know, I'm also, I'm also a witch. <laughs> and there's a, there's a thing in witchcraft, um, you know, you don't mess with stuff unless you know you're clean. Like you gotta, you, you, you know, if you're going to set some intentions and, 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 and do some heavy thinking on something, you want to make sure that your soul is clean. So if I write this song, it's kind of a spell or a, or a magic, it's magic. It's like, here's this, here are these words, this magic. And I'm, I'm calling you out. I'm calling me out and I'm calling you out, but I already made sure that everything I in here that I can answer to, I can answer to, yeah, I ignored women 30 years ago that I was working with who were people of color saying, you need to be listening to me. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I am, I am, I am. And I was not. And so I know that. And that's why I feel safe in writing that song because if I get called out, I can say, yeah, I know. I know that I ignored so many people screaming because that's why I wrote the song. And I know that two years from now, I'll probably be writing more about what I didn't see today because I'm constantly being awakened to stuff that I had no idea was happening around me. Willful ignorance of the, my surroundings. And I think as we sort of kind of wind down a bit, um, you made a great point to me earlier about social permaculture. Oh yeah. And you even have a song that kind of relates to this. Could you uh, make that point again <laughs> now with the mics rolling? Because yeah. I thought it was a really beautiful thing. And I think when you, when you step back from the really heavy stuff, the mental illness stuff, the social justice stuff, what you do with this project also plays a role with this observation about social permaculture. Right. Yeah. So anything you want to share? Well, there? social permaculture basically comes from permaculture, which is a combination of um, permanent and agriculture. And it's a design system. And it's it's basically a it's a kind of a new way of doing the old ancient way that would be taking care of the land based on the way native American people or na native people from all over the world would have, or the, the sensibilities that, that they've passed down then combined with people who want to be doing design. So it's, it's a kind of a, a modern and ancient blend. And so in social permaculture, social permaculture, it'd be using those same principles and applying them to a collaborative setting. And it's trying to get your, the setting away from, away from a hierarchical structure and into collaborative structures. And so in doing that, we can set up systems that don't resemble you know, a teacher and a classroom or a parent and a student or a boss and a, and a, but rather groups that can interact. And how does your song relate to that? Okay. Concept? I think I'm not sure if I have a song about. Groundswell. Oh, Groundswell, right. yeah. yeah. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't remember what the title was, but I remember there was a song. Yeah. Right. Ripples over ripples, roots all entwined. Ground's been swelling, swelling over time. Something like that. It ain't too late. <laughs> Yeah. That's my line. Don't give yeah. up without a fight. Yeah. <laughs> I love these Those guys. are all these, these, this, these, Okay, so I just want to, first of all, I've been talking the whole time, and, and that's fine, because, yeah, it's my band, and yeah, I'm mental health, all these things. But these guys, 
this is what it feels like to be, you know, a, a woman, a white woman who has a lot of privilege and a lot of, a, a lot of ability who's also broken to be supported by these three shockingly good musicians is, um, and for them to just whip out my lyrics when I couldn't even remember <laughs> my own, what song it was. Lucky it, it's a song we it, all sing in. <laughs> it makes me realize that, you know, just, just to really remember, you know, I'm really guilty of painting things with a wide, wide brush and saying, you know, and there's no men and there's no women. And, and, and there's a lot of truth to that, but there's a lot of truth to we get a lot of support. And a lot well, let's of analyze love. groundswell because I think it fits That's contextually. It. So, so now that I've I've gotten a little teary eyed over you guys, groundswell is yeah they it's it they say it ain't too late, and I say don't give up without a fight. And basically, my song is about this this cultural um, thing has been happening underground like it's it's there there's people like how oh, we need to do something about the homelessness or we it's there it's right there it's the passion the is there ground's been swelling swelling all this time there's for everything you think you want to do there's already a bunch of people doing it all you have to do is go volunteer the ground has been swelling swelling all this time is just that there's been social justice movements Generations for generations, and it's just our turn to join them. Not reinvent the wheel. Not you know we don't have to do anything. We just have to. We just have to figure out a way. And we just have to. This is it's our turn. I can't think of a better way to wind down the episode than on that point. And you know, Lee, you sharing the story of of your life. I mean, your art is your life, and your yeah. life is your art. But for you to sit down and just like in detail share it, I think is a really generous thing. And like yeah. I was saying to you before the show, it's like one of the reasons I wanted to have you on so much is that when we talked about having you on, yeah. your 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 story is is incredibly unique, and not everybody is comfortable coming on here and bearing their soul. Yeah. And so, uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. And thanks to my amazing band for letting me talk the whole time. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you doing that helps us understand and appreciate the music that you all collaboratively are going to play together. Yeah. And so why don't we do that? Yeah. Why don't we, uh, yeah. why don't we wrap good. this up music. and let's good. do that. So let's hear some tunes. We've talked, and now, in a moment, a set of music by Lee Vanderveer Band is up next. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks. Thank you awesome. so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah.
Douglas County Call me sweetie in the alley And I was both flattered and afraid Could be a wedding ring Could be a switchblade To have the cure We're not versed in the ways of the demure They were strong enough to say checkmate still Some old boy is gonna set them straight Said I was the angel of West County Called me sweetie in the alley And I was both flattered and afraid Could be a wedding ring Could be a switchblade Take his hand to the dance floor Will that be enough? Will he demand more? Get mad if I say no Will I be sneaking out the back door? Call me sweetie in the alley 
both flattered and afraid Could be a wedding ring Could be a switchblade Could be a wedding ring Could be a switchblade Could be a wedding ring Could be a switchblade
almost killed me not being seen Almost killed me giving up on my dreams I screamed at the top of my lungs Some things can't be undone Did they save my soul? Shook my bones till I was whole Sing away all they stole Sing away all they stole Sing away Decades of sorrow till the star shines bright Standing together with one hell of a fight Face Medusa turned to stone Blame her, she should have known The dead they saved my soul Shook my bones till I was whole Sing away, all they stole Sing away, all they stole
stars at night Rolling around in some other galaxy In no time we were swimming by the red tide light Thank you.